From Notre Dame Cathedral to the Houses of Parliament, the buildings Europeans have come to love may not be purely European after all. Their designs were influenced by vibrant Middle Eastern centres like Damascus, Baghdad and Cairo, but this cultural debt is being increasingly airbrushed from Europe's history. Welcome to Afterwards. I am Angad Singh Chowdhury, co-founder of Quilt.ai, here talking today with Diana Dark, an Arabist and cultural expert who has lived and worked in the Middle East for over 30 years. A Spectator Book of the Year, Stealing from the Saracens, is the fascinating tale of cultural exchange, shedding new light on some of Europe's greatest landmarks. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the borrowing of Islamic architecture and the importance of acknowledging cultural debt. Diana, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a big pleasure to be here. So the provocation on the title, I would love it if you would explain to the audience what these, the implications of that uh, yeah. book title oh, are. Of, of course. Well, for a start, the word Saracens had to be in the title. That was very clear. And I'll explain that because the cover of the book is the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. So you're looking up into the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, built by Sir Christopher Wren, one of the greatest English architects. And he wrote in his own memoirs towards the end of his life, and he lived you know, to be over 90, so he had massive experience. And he said, what we call the Gothic style should rightly be called the Saracen style. And this is his observation based on a lifetime's study and and noting all the influences. He's a very open-minded man. And what he recognised in Gothic architecture was all the... I mean, he used the word Saracen to mean Arab Muslims, basically. So the word Islamic as such didn't seem to be in use at that time. So all Arab Muslims were called Saracens. And the derivation of the word Saracens in Arabic, Saraka, to steal, Sarikin, is people who steal. So it's a double irony in the title that isn't it crazy that we in the West call thieves people that we took things from. So It's meant to be slightly amusing. It's meant to show how absurd all of this is, really. But, of course, some people have taken it literally and got very upset when that's not what it's about at all. I mean, the subtitle makes it clear. It's how Islamic architecture shaped Europe. The idea from this book, based on what you've said publicly, came from a tweet after the tragic Notre Dame fire in 2019, there were some ideas that you shared about how the cathedral's architectural design was influenced by Syria, and in particular, the story of Syrian Dennis. How does a tweet become an entire book with footnotes and a completely new history of the past? I mean, I can honestly say, if it hadn't been for the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in April 2019, I would never have written this book, because I actually assumed that most people knew the backstory of Gothic. And it was only because of the worldwide reaction to the fire and the cry that went up from France about our national identity going up in flames. And I just, you know, my mouth dropped open and I thought, well, hang on a minute, don't you realise that pretty much every feature of Gothic architecture, apart from the flying buttresses, 
is not French. It's come from much further east. So when I just spontaneously put that into a tweet and attached a photograph of the first sort of twin towers flanking a monumental facade on a church, that seemed to trigger, to my astonishment, a huge reaction where people just, you know, either disagreed or else they were just astonished. But again, you know, the architecture speaks for itself. You can see it. You know, it's a very, very early 5th century church, which obviously way, way, way by many centuries predates Gothic architecture. Yeah. I mean, there were the Twin Towers as well as the monumental arches for the pilgrims and in Syria. I read about the Church of St. Simeon, I That's think. That's right, yes. St. Simeon, which was the pilgrimage site of the ancient world. I mean, you know, it was the Santiago de Compostela of its day. Pilgrims went, travelled from everywhere in Europe to go there. So they were very influenced by these early styles. That was the thing, obviously, that's pre-Islamic, the influence of the twin towers flanking the monumental facade. But then, you know, the first Umayyad Islamic dynasty conquers the area they absorb what was there before, but also introduce then in the Dome of the Rock, the first Umayyad structure, the pointed arch and the trefoil arch. And this is what you called a blended building or blended architecture. It was an interesting turn of phrase in one of your interviews, especially with the Dome of the Rock. Is this correct? Yes, yes, exactly. So a European person might look at the Dome of the Rock and assume it was a Byzantine structure. Of course, elements of Byzantine architecture are there in that simple dome and the octagonal shape. But what the Umayyads, the first Muslim dynasty, did from their capital in Damascus was to use the pointed arch for the first time in the inner colonnade and up beneath the dome, you have the first trefoil arches that occur and, and, and the influence for those has come from further east still. So it's travelling basically and of course the Dome of the Rock then gets misidentified by the Templar Crusaders <laughs> and they call it the Temple of Solomon and turn it into their headquarters, you know, little understanding the irony of the fact that they're adopting a Muslim shrine as their kind of icon. You know, they put it on their coins. <laughs> And this was discovered in that the drawing or that map that you have of the area and it's labelled as uh, Solomon, right? Exactly, that's right. And then pilgrims mm. who went to Jerusalem mm. perpetuated the myth by pretty much every map of Jerusalem that was drawn right up until, well, the sort of 18th, 19th century shows the Dome of the Rock as the centrepiece. And this is Christian maps showing the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim shrine, as the centerpiece of Jerusalem, because they just didn't understand what it really was. Even though it's got an inscription in Arabic on the outside declaring to Christians of Jerusalem that that they should only believe in one God and not three gods. And not the Trinity. Not yes. the Trinity, exactly. Yes. But the, the early crusaders didn't read the Arabic. They mistook it for the language of Christ. And then they, that's why they then copied it the Arabic script in inscriptions in churches and on the on the hems of garments, you know, thinking this was holy script. 
I mean, there's so much ignorance, basically, in the Middle Ages, so much confusion. This was something else that my research has uncovered, all these unbelievable, I suppose, you know, there wasn't an internet, there wasn't anything. So people just took the word of the clergy, by and large, the top elites in the church basically got to decide everything. And, and it was just passed down to a largely illiterate public. Tell me something. How do you, as a researcher, the fact that architecture is visible and it's not interpretive beyond a point, it's there, there's a building standing there and you can date it and then you can compare that building to another building somewhere else. How do you scale this? Because there is a scale and breadth of the work that you have. And I know that you've been to certain places yourself and observe certain things physically. But how do you scale an exercise like this, particularly now when you have photographs of so many monuments already online? Do you think there's a way in which you can just use the tremendous amount of data on even something as simple as Google Earth and develop new ideas about how influences have traveled between cultures? Well, it made a huge difference in my case, being able to visit all these relevant sites across the Middle East, you know, from my early 20s onwards, when I when I decided to study Arabic at university, basically, that's when, if you like, my eyes were opened to the world beyond Europe. I'd been brought up, like pretty much everybody of my generation in Europe, to believe that Greece and Rome were the source of all civilization. They originated everything. And that's what I genuinely believed until I went to university and made the choice to change to Arabic. Then I saw for myself that actually even things like Greek temples with the gable shape that we think of as so Greek actually came from the Uratians in central Anatolia. And again, the dates speak for themselves because, you know, those Uratian gable facades carved into rock faces, you know, date from the 7th century BC. So clearly, again, it's another case of somebody influential sees a style that they like and they adopt it and it gradually travels that way. For example, I can tell the story of the pointed arch, how it came into Europe first, how it actually arrived on European soil. The abbot of Monte Cassino from the Benedictine order of monks travelled to Amalfi in Italy to buy some lavish silks because the Italians, the Amalfi merchants were trading with Cairo and with many Islamic cities. When he went to Amalfi, he noticed the new cathedral had pointed arches and he liked the style very much. And so he inquired and found who had built it. And, and so he said, right, I would like that in my abbey back in Monte Cassino. So he even ordered all the craftsmen and the materials to be imported. And then once he had it, another the head of the Benedictine church at Cluny visited Monte Cassino and saw the pointed arches and said, ah, I would like that too. And once Cluny, the headquarters of the whole of the Benedictine order, this is the most powerful church in Europe, once Cluny decided to have pointed arches, of course, it became all the rage. Every bishop in every city across France wanted to have their pointed arches. That's how it all began with the pointed arch. And 
Of course, they then discovered the pointed arch makes is stronger structurally, so you can make your building taller with thinner walls and bigger windows. And so this is how the whole style changes from the sort of dark, thick-walled Romanesque to the much taller, thinner-walled, and then you get the stained-glass windows that can come in, you know. So the whole style becomes this craze all over Europe at that time, when, of course, it wasn't even called Gothic. It was called the French style. The whole word of calling it Gothic came in much later. (laughs) And um, do you find influences going from Europe to Syria in terms of architecture or to the Middle East? Do you find the backward movement as well? Much less, much less. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that the level of civilization, especially the vaulting techniques, to get back mm-hmm. to the St. Paul's and Christopher Wren, you know, it was the vaulting techniques were so superior mm. in the Middle East, in the Islamic world. And they come into Europe for the first time. You see them for the first time in European soil in Spain at the Cordova Mesquita, because again, this is the early Omeyads. When the Umayyad prince, the last one, uh, you know, all the rest of the Umayyads were massacred and killed by the Abbasids. But this one Umayyad prince escaped across North Africa and made it to Spain, where he set up the new Umayyad dynasty. And so, of course, he creates Syria in Spain and brings with him all the craftsmen. And so they have all these vaulting skills And you can still see them now in the domes, the vaults in the Cordova Mesquita. I mean, the one that's immediately in front of the mihrab in the mosque has been structurally examined by engineers, by Spanish structural engineers, and they were flabbergasted at what they found, that this represented, you know, the height of the mastery of geometry, and it's never needed structural repair in its entire 1500 years. From an evidence perspective, at one point, of course, there is the aesthetic similarity and the structural timeline. But you also had a story about masons and the signatures of masons that were clearly Islamic uh, Middle Eastern names being found in some of the churches in Europe. Could you tell me a little bit about that? That that follows on very well from what I've just saying about the Cordova Mesquita, because it was during later restoration work that these mason's marks were found and they're displayed today on the back wall of the Cordova Mesquita, which of course today is is a cathedral. But again, you know, you just look at all these mason's marks and the overwhelming majority of them are Muslim names written in Arabic script. So it's very clear that the masons themselves were Muslims They had brought their skills into Europe and, of course, then passed their skills over to the local population. And these people then became skilled in their own right across the generations, you know, and skills, as with all these crafts, you know, passed down from father to son. And and so, of course, Christian masons then became equally skilled within another century or two. But in the Cordoba Mesquita, the quality of the vaulting is essential for Gothic architecture to be able to build on. They simply could not have built the vaulting, the fan vaulting that it then evolves into without that mastery of geometry that the Muslim masons brought in. In my notes, I have something about Constantinople and a lot of items and elements from their um, available 
for display and baked into some of the buildings in Venice. I would love to hear more about that. This goes back to the Fourth Crusade in 1204, which really was a ridiculous affair because it's when, instead of going to the Holy Land, supposedly to reclaim Jerusalem from the infidels, you know, the infidel Muslims, in fact, they got diverted to Constantinople and attacked the Orthodox Church there. So it was Christianity, the Roman Catholics attacking the Orthodox. So Christianity attacking another sect of Christianity. So and frankly, that so weakened Constantinople and the Venetians carted off loads of booty back to Venice. And that's what you see all around St. Mark's Basilica in, in Venice. You see all these pillars that were dragged back and the horses. And I mean, really, Venice is almost alive with pillaged goods from Constantinople. It sort of defies belief in a way, but what it did was ultimately weaken Christianity so much, it weakened the Eastern Roman Empire so much that it never really recovered. Constantinople never recovered. That's what enabled then the, the Ottoman conquest to succeed. But having said that, of course, the Venetians at the time were very, very keen on everything to do with Islamic architecture. I mean, it really is an Islamic city. So when, when people talk about... Venetian Gothic architecture. They really should be calling it Venetian Islamic architecture. And yet, influential critics like John Ruskin in the Victorian age, you know, he praises Venice in, in his very influential work, The Stones of Venice, and is actually quite rude about Arab culture, not realizing that it's all the same thing. You know, this <laughs> you get these other curious things. And actually, I must just mention here, because again, this is something very few people make the link, that the arts and crafts movement in the 19th century, when you get the Gothic revival that comes in in the 19th century, that's all triggered by John Ruskin and him going to Venice and producing his book and his sketches of Venice. It triggers this Gothic revival all across Europe, and particularly in, in England, where the arts and crafts movement then takes it up and people like William Morris, who are so popular now, I mean, my goodness, you know, William Morris curtains, William Morris table mats, William Morris cushions, it's everywhere, you know, it's so desirable. And yet there is zero acknowledgement that that is all influenced by Islamic styles. Although William Morris himself does talk about Persian influence, because again, in the Victorian time, the thinking was that because Persian is an Indo-European language, they could sort of relate to that, whereas there was this sense that Arabic languages were not as sophisticated. There was a complete, there was such ignorance, basically. It kind of coloured our view, to some extent, of these things, which is why I felt it was a story that needed to be unearthed. On your point about colouring views, do you think there was a time when there was this cleaving, let's take the example of Gothic architecture and it becoming synonymous with European architecture? Could you trace a point where the cleaving actually took place? Because the original people who were bringing in the Masons, etc., were very clearly aware that it was coming from somewhere else. What caused this cleaving? Is it just people forgetting things? Or do you think there are more complex forces at play? Well, if you're talking back at the time that Gothic architecture appeared, I think that the person who was credited with that, the, an abbot Suger in the Saint-Denis 
Basilica in Paris. He certainly culturally appropriated it without any understanding of where these pointed arches had come from. He he was uh, talking about the philosophy of light, the light coming in through the windows and the stained glass. I mean, so in fact, he took all the credit. It's even on the stained glass windows. He puts himself in the stained glass windows and says, I, Suger, created this new style. He was the main assistant, if you like, sort of almost prime minister of the King of France at the time. So he, again, an incredibly powerful man who was actually left as regent of France for a time when the King of France went off on crusade. So he was a very, very powerful man who did appropriate the style, almost as if it was like some kind of virgin birth that just sort of popped out by some miracle. I mean, that's the sort of language he almost uses, that like he had an epiphany about this style. <laughs> that's the narrative that we in Europe have kind of followed, that yes, you know, without thinking about the backstory of how all these elements suddenly arrived, you know. Because one thing I learned from the researchers is how long everything takes. I mean, it takes many, many generations for styles to evolve. So the pointedness of the arch, for example, again, scholars have studied how it takes 25 years for the sharpness of the arch to increase by one degree. So these things take generations, centuries to become more and more pointed. You know, it doesn't just pop out like some miracle. So a lot of that was deliberate cultural appropriation and then and then a lot of ignorance because people didn't bother to unearth the backstory. But then more recently, since 2003, of course, there's been a, a conscious disassociation from the Islamic world, you know, because of the American invasion of Iraq and what that unleashed people start in Europe started to associate Islam with terrorism. And of course, that is truly tragic, so misleading, so completely wrong. So sadly, you know, a lot of Europeans still think like that. And, and, and there's a sort of sense, well, how can this possibly have its origins in the Islamic world? There is a lot of architectural conspiracies, almost like this semiotics of suspicion and pattern recognition that's become very popular. I don't know if you've seen it around, but um, a good example would be Pulp Fiction novels that, you know, like Dan Brown and books like that. And on the internet, I don't know if you spend a lot of time there, but there are many, many narratives about the meaning of architecture and how objects and patterns are found across the world that sometimes don't have any connection with each other. Have you encountered people like that speaking to you on the internet? Uh, have you got letters about subjects like that? And what is your overall insight into why pattern searching is happening so much these days? Yeah, I haven't had much of that, to be honest. And I had people who disagree with me, but most of them, I have to say, have been older white European men who are kind of, if you like, products of the education system where they simply refuse to believe that any of these elements could have begun further east. So I've had some pushback from that, but the evidence really speaks for itself in terms of, you know, architecture. You can't argue with what you see. I try to sort of make this clear right at the end of the book in the final chapter where there's a whole chapter is given over to images of iconic European buildings and they're all labelled. You know, I will show 
Westminster Abbey or the Houses of Parliament, Notre Dame itself or the Court of a Mesquita, Big Ben, and actually label on the images where these elements have come from. And then you can look it all up mm. in the index to see, you know, the, mm. the, the origins of it all, because that helps mm. to try and draw all the threads together. It seems to me that you've, you're constructing a tapestry where history is not linear and one-dimensional and moving in one way, and that there are influences coming back and forth. And as a process and a methodology, do you feel that this can help with uh, helping nations empathize with each other a little bit more and helping cultures empathize with each other a little bit more, not by just getting to know people and understanding shared history, but almost looking at the physical geography or the architecture that exists in multiple cultures and using that to build out a shared past together. Yes, very much so. I mean, that's basically why I chose to write the book, because I wanted to show how all cultures interweave and interact in ways that most of the time we just don't think about it. It's important for everybody to understand and acknowledge these earlier cultural debts, because that enriches everybody's understanding and helps them to appreciate that it's not just their culture that is superior to a different culture. All cultures contribute something. Each new generation that comes along uses what was there before and builds upon it. You know, I mean, I, I think I say at one point in, in the book, you know, nobody owns architecture, no, just like nobody owns science, but everything is interlinked and interwoven in ways that I think it's important to point out because people need to understand, especially in this global age, how connected we all are. We shouldn't be trying to separate ourselves. We should be trying to actually acknowledge the things that connect us. Thank you to Diana Dark for taking part in this episode. You can buy her book, Stealing from the Saracens, now from the Hearst Publishers website. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and Quilt.ai at QuiltAI underscore on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to the email updates at HearstPublishers.com. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury. Thank you for listening and follow me on Twitter at Angad Singh.